Now when you read the New Testament and see Jesus refer to himself as the Son of Man, you can know that this isn't some arbitrary title, but rather this has deep prophetic meaning and was deliberately chosen by Jesus. Welcome to the Millennial Apologist. I'm your host Nathan, and in this episode, we are going to discuss seven biblical passages that most Christians will find familiar. However, we're going to dig deep into these passages and find that there's much more going on with them than that which meets the eye. First, let's talk about who Jesus is. Now, Jesus is many things. He is God, or the great I Am, as seen in John 8:58. He is Israel's Messiah, Matthew 16, 16, the Prince of Peace, Isaiah 9, 6, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, Revelation 5, 5, the Lamb of God, John 1, 29. If we look at the words of Jesus, however, we see that he refers to himself as the Son of Man more than any other title, and this phrase occurs more than 80 times in the New Testament. Now, when I first read through the Gospels as a new believer, I didn't understand why Jesus constantly referred to himself as the Son of Man. I thought that perhaps this was to communicate to others that he really was human. You know, because he's performing miracles and doing all these wonderful works, so I thought that the public probably thought he was divine and they would be right in that assumption. But I thought that he called himself the Son of Man to ensure his followers that even though he is divine, he is still fully human as well. However, uh, after a couple years of being a Christian, I stumbled upon the real reason why Jesus referred to himself as the Son of Man, and that can be found in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 through 14, which reads this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven, and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him, and there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, that which shall not be destroyed. Now this is in Daniel, so this was written over 500 years before Jesus was born. So the primary reason Jesus called himself the Son of Man was not to relate to humanity. Rather, it was his declaration that he is the divine figure Daniel was referring to centuries ago. So here Jesus is declaring that he is the one who will inherit the world, the universe, and all of heaven, and he will be the one that every knee shall bow to. Now since the Pharisees of Jesus' day were experts in the Old Testament, they must have been livid that Jesus was going around referring to himself as the Son of Man. And we can see in the trial before the Pharisees in Mark 14 verses 61 to 64, the high priest asked Jesus and said unto him, Art thou the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest ripped his clothes and said, What need we any further witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. And they all condemned him to be guilty of death. So we see here, as Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man, he relates it to that image of coming in the clouds of heaven, just like Daniel said over 500 years before his birth. So now when you read the New Testament and see Jesus refer to himself as the Son of Man, you can know that this isn't some arbitrary title, but rather this has deep prophetic meaning and was deliberately chosen 
by Jesus. Now the second passage we're going to look at can be found in Luke 4 verses 16 to 20. And this takes place right after Jesus resisted the temptation of the devil in the wilderness. And it reads as follows. And Jesus came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, and he gave it again to the minister, and sat down. Now, what's remarkable is that when you compare what Jesus read to the passage in Isaiah, which that was from Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 through 2, you discover that Jesus stopped mid-sentence. And so now I'm going to read directly from Isaiah 61, the first two verses. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, and the day of vengeance of our God. So when we compare Luke 4 to Isaiah 61, we see that Jesus deliberately left out the part of Isaiah that talks about the Messiah declaring the day of vengeance of our God. Now this is because while his first coming was about demonstrating God's love and offering forgiveness to the world, his second coming will be very different. So he stopped mid-sentence because his first coming only fulfilled that portion of the prophecy. However, his second coming will fulfill the part he left out because that's when he will execute judgment and pour his wrath out on the world. And we can see this in passages such as 2 Thessalonians 1 verses 7 to 10, which reads that, To you who are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God, and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power, when he shall come to be glorified in his saints and to be admired in all them that believe in that day. Also in Revelation 6, verses 15 to 17, which reads that the kings of the earth and the great men and the rich men and the chief captains and the mighty men and every bondman and every free man hid themselves in the dens of the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of his wrath is come and who shall be able to stand so while jesus's first coming was all about love and forgiveness and non-judgment his second coming will be exclusively dealing with judgment and justice and repaying evil with what it deserves One cool way to look at this passage is that to this day there has been a 2,000 year gap between the first and second halves of Isaiah 61 verse 2. And even though that may seem like a long time, we should remember that 2 Peter 3 tells us to be not ignorant of this one thing, 
that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. But the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness. The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat, and earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. So the Bible tells us that even though there has been about 2,000 years since Jesus came, he will come back and God will fulfill his promises. Now, our third passage that we will dissect can be found in Matthew twenty-seven forty-six, which states that while Jesus hung on the cross, about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And this can also be found in Mark 15, verse 34. So a good question to ask is, why did Jesus say that? Did his faith falter while he hung on the cross? Did he actually think that the Father had truly forsaken him forever? Uh, Jesus' words do portray the reality that he experienced the wrath of God in that moment on the cross for the sins of humanity. But something deeper is going on here. Um, Now, I will read to you some passages from Psalm 22. Uh, This was written by King David about a thousand years before Jesus was born. It starts with saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my roaring? All they that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head, saying, He trusted on the Lord that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him, seeing he delighted in him. You have brought me into the dust of death, for dogs have compassed me. The assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I may tell all my bones. They look and stare upon me. They part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. Now let's compare Psalm 22, written a thousand years before Jesus was born, to the crucifixion narrative of Jesus, which can be found in Matthew 27. Now in Matthew 27, uh, there are some passages that read the following. And they crucified Jesus and parted his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet. They parted my garments among them, and upon my vesture did they cast lots. And they that passed by reviled him, wagging their heads, and saying, Thou that destroyest the temple, and buildest it in three days, save thyself. If thou be the Son of God, come down from the cross." Because as you recall, Jesus said he would destroy the temple and build it up in three days, um, being symbolic of his body and his resurrection. And so here people were walking by him on the cross, mocking him, basically, saying, oh, you said you'd destroy the temple and build it back in three days? Go ahead, save yourself if you're the son of God. And uh, the last passage we'll look at from Matthew 27 reads that from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land unto the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So what's amazing is that when you read Psalm 22, though it was written by David by inspiration of God a thousand years before Jesus was born, it basically portrays reality from a first-person perspective as Jesus hung on the cross of his crucifixion. Now that's remarkable. Another really cool thing is that in Psalm 22, it mentions getting your hands and feet pierced. And that's neat because crucifixion wasn't even 
widely instituted by the Romans as capital punishment until a few centuries before Jesus was born. So when David was writing this psalm, he never even heard of crucifixion. That wasn't even a popular form of capital punishment at the time. So that just adds even more awe to this passage and this beautiful prophecy that basically shows the crucifixion through Christ's view as he hung on the cross. And our fourth passage that we will look over can be found in Mark 9, verses 43 to 48, where Jesus says that if thy hand offend thee, cut it off. It is better for thee to enter into life maimed than having two hands to go into hell, into the fire that never shall be quenched, where their worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. And if thy foot offend thee, cut it off. It is better for thee to enter halt into life than having two feet to be cast into hell, into the fire that never shall be quenched, where their worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. And if thy eye offend thee, pluck it out. It is better for thee to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire, where their worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. So an uh, interesting little side note is that the word translated as hell in English uh, is the Greek word Gehenna, uh, which originates from the Hebrew phrase, the Valley of the Sons of Hinnom, which was a sinister place in ancient Israelite history. Second Chronicles 28.3 notes that the wicked Israelite king Ahaz burnt incense in the Valley of the Sons of Hinnom and burnt his children in the fire after the abominations of the heathen whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. Some traditions say that Gehenna later became a trash dump that was perpetually burning. So while Jesus' language of worms never dying and fire never being quenched portrays the concept of eternal fiery torment in hell, something else is going on here. Now I'm going to read from Isaiah chapter 66, verses 22 to 24, and this is actually how the entire book of Isaiah ends. It says that, As the new heavens and the new earth, which I will make, shall remain before me, saith the Lord, so shall your seed and your name remain. And it shall come to pass, that from one new moon to another, and from one Sabbath to another, shall all flesh come to worship before me, saith the Lord. And they shall go forth and look upon the carcasses of the men that have transgressed against me, for their worm shall not die, neither shall their fire be quenched, and they shall be an abhorring unto all flesh. And I'll just relate this to Revelation when it says that I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were open, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away. So relating this all to Jesus' statement of their worm never dying and the fire never being quenched, you see that he pulls that phrase from Isaiah 66. Now, a quick little background is the Bible basically describes that right when you die, the immaterial part of you, your soul, goes to either heaven and God's presence or hell, which is a place of torment. However, the Bible says that at the end of this age, there will be a resurrection and everyone's souls will eventually be reunited with their bodies. And then in these eternal bodies, you will then spend eternity either in God's loving presence or under the wrath of God in the lake of fire. 
So this is very chilling because the passage in Isaiah 66 says that the saints, which are the saved, will look upon the carcasses of the men that have transgressed against God after the new heavens and the new earth are created, which, as we saw in Revelation 20, the new heavens and the new earth will exist after the bodily resurrection. So this means that just like the saved and unsaved souls appear to be conscious of each other's conditions, which can be seen in Luke 16, verses 19 to 31, the saved will be able to witness God's wrath poured out upon unbelievers when everyone's soul is reunited to their body after the uh, final judgment. So to put it simply, while Christians are living in heaven after the resurrection, they will actually be able to see those who are burning in hell for eternity. Now, I want to point out that, you know, this is just a few verses that support this. You know, there's not, it's not like there's verse after verse supporting this doctrine. Like you have, you know, salvation by faith alone and the deity of Christ. And um, once saved, always saved. You have a, just an abundance of verses supporting those doctrines. But this, it's only based off of a few verses. But if you relate Jesus' words of their worm never dying and the fire never being quenched, you see that he pulled that from Isaiah. And in Isaiah, it says that the saints will look upon those whose worm never dies and the fire is never quenched, that is tormenting them, and that this takes place after the new heavens and the new earth. And if we see in Revelation, the new heavens and the new earth take place after everybody's souls are reunited with their bodies. So that will be your final eternal state. So it's very chilling to think that while we are in our final eternal state as believers in the presence of God, worshiping him, we will have the ability to see those who are suffering in the lake of fire. All right, and after that note, let's look at uh, the fifth passage to dissect, which is the triumphal entry. And this is one of the better known events of Jesus's Passion Week, and it's celebrated annually as Palm Sunday. Now, many people have seen images or videos recreating this historic event uh, when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey and the Jews were laying down palm branches and said, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he that come in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. Now, while this scene is familiar to most people, there are many details present which have their roots in the Old Testament. So I'll just read the passage for you. This is Luke 19, verses 35 to 40. And the disciples brought the donkey to Jesus, and they set Jesus thereon. And as he went, they spread their clothes in the way. And when he was come near, even now at the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed be the king that come in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees from among the multitude said unto him, Master, rebuke thy disciples. And Jesus answered and said unto them, I tell you that if these should hold their peace, the stones would immediately cry out. So a nice question to ponder is, why were the Pharisees so upset about this? Well, the Pharisees despised Jesus, so obviously they would not want a multitude of Jews to declare Jesus as king. However, when the elements of this scene are examined, it becomes clear that the Pharisees had very good reasons to be upset. When the details present in the triumphal entry are related to the Old Testament, one discovers that the Jews on Palm Sunday weren't recognizing Jesus as just any other king. 
Rather, they were recognizing him as Israel's true Messiah. And so we'll look over uh, the first congruent element, which can be seen in Psalm 118, verses 21 to 26, which states, I will praise thee, for thou hast heard me and are become my salvation. The stone which the builders refused is become the headstone of the corner. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Blessed be he that come in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you out of the house of the Lord. So this passage has messianic undertones because it talks about the cornerstone which was rejected, a phrase equated to Jesus in the New Testament. So you can see this in Mark 12:10 and Acts 4, 8 to 12. It also mentions he that comes in the name of the Lord and the day which the Lord has made, which refer to the Messiah and the day of his coming. Uh, the second congruent element between Palm Sunday or the triumphal entry um, can be found in Zechariah 9.9, which states, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding upon a donkey. Centuries before Christ's birth, Zechariah predicted that the Messiah would declare his kingship by riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. The Jews who were praising Jesus on Palm Sunday recognized him as fulfilling this prophecy. Uh, see Matthew 21, verses 4 to 5. And they began to sing Psalm 118 to praise his coming. Uh, what's interesting is that Jesus deliberately hid his identity as Messiah until this point. And now something cool is that Jesus' response to the Pharisees is very telling because the Pharisees recognized that Jesus was declaring himself as Messiah and that the Jews were accepting his declaration. Because of their disdain for Jesus, they told him to rebuke his disciples. However, Jesus responds by further confirming his identity as Messiah. He says that if the Jews would keep quiet, then the very stones would cry out, proclaiming the truth that he is indeed Israel's Messiah. The sixth hidden treasure can be found in John 21 verses 15 to 17, which occurs after Jesus had been resurrected and he appears to the disciples. And it states, Now when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Tend my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said unto him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Shepherd my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Tend my sheep. Now, this is a very peculiar passage, and when I first read through it, I was, I was puzzled. I did not understand why Jesus asked Peter three times if he loved him. Um, a common thought is that maybe, you know, because Peter denied Jesus three times, Jesus asked him if he loved him three times to somehow correlate with those denials. But I think if we dig into the passage a little deeper, you uh, find something very interesting. So the Greek language has different words for different kinds of love. So we have agape, which is uh, typically believed to be unconditional, deep love, which is like God's love for his children. We have philia, which is brotherly, friendly love, uh, like one's love for their friends. That's why the city Philadelphia 
means the city of brotherly love. Uh, and then we have eros, which is erotic sexual love, which is like one's love for their spouse. So if we look at the words translated as love in our English Bible, we see that the first occurrence or the first time Jesus asked Peter if he loved him, what happened was Jesus used the word agape, but Peter used the word philia. So Jesus said, Peter, do you agape me? And Peter said, yes, Lord, I philia you. The second time, it's the same thing. Jesus says, no, Peter, do you agape me? And Peter says, yes, Lord, I philia you. Now, the third occurrence, Jesus finally switches to the word that Peter had been using for love, which is generally regarded as a lesser form of love than agape. So the third time Jesus says, you know, okay, Peter, so you philia me? And Peter says, yes, Lord, I philia you. Now, notice that when Jesus asked Peter if he loved him the third time, Jesus used the word philia instead of agape like he did for the first two times. And Peter's grief after the third occurrence demonstrates his acknowledgement that he cannot truly agape the Lord. Though Peter appeared bold and hard-headed prior to his three denials of Jesus, he portrays much more humility after the resurrection. So this brings up the question, who can agape God? Can you truly agape God? Because Jesus states that the first and greatest commandment in the law is to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. See Matthew 22, 37 and Deuteronomy 6. Now the primary message of Christianity is that since everyone has failed to keep the law of God, God entered his creation as the man Jesus Christ, fulfilled the law, and was crucified and rose again so that all who accept his atoning sacrifice by faith alone will receive eternal life and be justified before God. So I think what's going on in this passage here is that Peter realized that he, being a sinful and fallen human being, could never keep the law and therefore could never truly agape God with all of his heart, soul, and mind. And neither can you. This is why Jesus' sacrifice is necessary for salvation. And this is a heresy when people say, oh, to be justified before God, to receive salvation, you need to repent of your sins, as in you need to stop sinning. Well, I have a newsflash, that is impossible. Uh, the letters of John tells us that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And a good question I would ask people you say that you have to stop sinning in order to be saved. Or they'll usually say, you know, you can lose your salvation if you sin, but then you can get it back. I'll say, okay, do you truly, 100% of every day, every hour, every minute, and every second, do you love God with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your mind? Because I don't know about you, but if I was judged just on that standard alone, I would not be comfortable being judged on a millisecond of my life because I know that I fall short every second and I fail to truly love God with 100% of my heart, soul, and mind. And that's why this passage is so beautiful because here Peter has finally realized I cannot uphold God's law and that's why Jesus' sacrifice was necessary and that's what separates Christianity apart from any other religion because it says that, hey, your, your right works, your good works are as filthy rags before God and you get none of the glory for your salvation. And the only way you can be justified before God is by Jesus Christ's sacrifice because he came, he did all the work, 
He's the one who said it is finished on the cross, and all you can do is humble yourself, deny yourself, and accept by faith alone the gift, the free gift of justification by the blood of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. All right, so now we are into our seventh and last hidden treasure of the Bible. Now, Paul wrote that we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom, which God ordained before the world unto our glory, which none of the princes of this world knew, for had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. And this can be found in 1 Corinthians 2, verses 7 to 8. So a question we're going to look at is, who are the princes of this world that Paul is referring to here? Well, when Paul uses terms like powers, princes, and principalities, he is usually referring to spiritual entities, such as demons, rather than human rulers. This can be found in Ephesians 6.12, which states that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Colossians 2 verses 14 to 15 notes that Jesus spoiled principalities and powers. He made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in the cross. Ephesians 3 verse 10 states that unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God. So here in these three verses written by Paul, we see that um, these terms, powers, principalities, princes, rulers, you know, that's generally referring to demonic or spiritual beings. So what's really cool about this, and I have to give credit to uh, Old Testament scholar Michael Heiser, you should read his book, The Unseen Realm. It's a very well-written book, um, goes into depth on the Old Testament and the ancient Israelite worldview, and there's a lot of good stuff in there. Reading his work pointed this out to me. Though there are a few Old Testament prophecies that indicate the Messiah must die for the sins of the world, which can be seen in Psalm 22, which was talked about this episode, Isaiah 53, and Daniel 9, verse 26, which is the prophecy of Daniel's 70 weeks, which was touched on um, on episode two of this podcast, many predictions imply that the Messiah would come and be a militant ruler, which would establish Israel as the primary kingdom on earth. Since the Jews were expecting a military-like figure as their Messiah, the concept of a crucified and humiliated Messiah did not make sense to them. And this is why Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 23, that we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block. It's a stumbling block to believe in a crucified Christ because the Jews were expecting a military ruler. Now recall that when Jesus had told his apostles that he would be crucified, Peter said that they must prevent this from happening. And then Jesus says the famous line, get behind me, Satan, to Peter. And that can be found in Matthew 26. So, what we're looking at is the ultimate trick. So just like the Jews, the devil and his angels were also expecting a militant Messiah to come and rule the world through Israel. Because, you know, even though there were a few prophecies of a Messiah that must die for the sins of the world, um, the overarching prophecies imply the rulership and kingship of the Messiah, which of course will be taken by Christ on a second coming. But the first coming was kind of discreetly hidden in there. And so think about if you are the devil and his angels, 
What is the best way to prevent somebody from establishing a kingdom and ruling the world? You kill them. Obviously, if you don't want somebody to take over the entire world, then the easiest thing to do, the best way to stop that is by killing that person. But little did the powers of darkness know, their orchestration of Jesus' death is the very act that resulted in their ultimate destruction. It's as if God intentionally portrayed the Messiah this way in the Old Testament, so the devil would kill Jesus, leading to the fulfillment of God's mysterious plan, which was made before the foundation of the world. And this is why Paul writes, None of the princes of this world knew God's mysterious plan, for if they had known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. (laughs) I love this. I mean, just imagine the look on their faces when they realized they crucified Christ and then that was all part of God's master plan and he resurrects three days later, opening the gateway to salvation for everybody. That is just awesome. And so I pray that these seven hidden treasures discussed in today's podcast truly strengthened your faith, uh, increased your respect for the genius and complexity of God's character as described in the Bible, and that it ultimately leads to you loving Jesus more and helping build his kingdom. Because we live in a day and age of intellectualism, and we will have people challenging us on the integrity of the Bible and its uh, truth claims. And the more we understand our Bible, the better we can show people that it truly is the word of God and that they should believe what it says about Jesus Christ and the glorious gospel. Thank you all for listening to this episode. I pray you have a good day. Bye.